Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it is a wonderful reality that you have gathered together a people like this and called them your church. Lord, it is a serious thing. It's a joy-inducing thing. It's a family dynamic in which we can laugh and have fun with each other, in which we can explore the deepest meaning of life, in which we can experience and share in each other's joys and each other's pains while pursuing you in your church. Lord, we thank you for showing yourself to us. We thank you for your word, that you don't leave us in the dark, that you don't leave us blind, that you show us who you are and how you want us to live. And we pray that as we explore it over these next few minutes, that you would continue to do your wonderful changing work in each and every one of us. We ask this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. To say something is supreme is a brash claim. To have supremacy communicates that there's nothing better. The supreme one is the most powerful, the most knowledgeable. He will never be found in second place. Think about the ways that we use this word supreme or supremacy. During the Second World War, there was an important emphasis for the United States and Great Britain to have air supremacy to completely dominate and control the skies over Europe because there was a belief, and a right belief, that if we could have air supremacy, then we could adequately support our troops on the ground. The Supreme Court, the highest court in our land, they have the final say on matters of applying the laws of our country. They can even decide which cases are worthy for them to hear and which aren't, and in this sense, they are supreme. Some countries have what they call a supreme leader. The country of Iran is an example of this. Ayatollah al-Khamenei is the supreme leader of Iran, and as such, he is the most powerful of all officials. As the supreme leader, he either has direct or indirect control over the executive, the legislative, legislative, and the judicial branches of government, all three of them. He also controls the military and the media. In this case, he is supreme. And we can't leave out the supreme pizza. (laughs) This delicious combination of all of our favorite toppings in one. Sausage and pepperoni and onions and mushrooms and peppers and olives. Better with green olives, mind you. This truly is a supreme treat depending upon your palate. Today we continue in our series that we're calling Supremacy from the book of Colossians. We've titled the series Supremacy because the purpose of this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, what he wanted them to understand and what he wants us to understand is that there is one person who is indeed supreme over all of the systems of philosophy of this world over religions, over other gods, even over some form of cosmic agenda that people might have. And as such, there is one best way 
one supreme way in which people are called to live because they desire to conform to the one who is supreme. And so as we go through Colossians over the next number of weeks, I'll be preaching many of the messages. I'm sure some of our other pastors will as well. We will be confronted with this perception that we have of our current reality. We'll be confronted with our current actions and our current focus and what we currently think and believe and confronted in a good way because we will have the desire, I hope, to conform to a better way, even the best way that's based on this one who is supreme. And so with that in mind, I want to ask you to grab a Bible and open with me to the book of Colossians chapter 1. See, a number of you have already picked up a copy of the scriptures. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. It's found on page 983 of that Pew Bible, if you're looking for it. And please turn with me. And as you turn, let me tell you the goal of the message this morning. My goal, and I think the goal of this text, is to paint a picture for you of the supremacy of Jesus. I use that expression to paint a picture for you because it's one thing to know intellectually that something is immense, preeminent, supreme. It's another thing to feel, to engage with it on a different sort of way. This passage is like a rapid-fire description of who Jesus is and what Jesus does It's called a hymn by some scholars. It's called an exaltation by others. It has a point, though. The point is for you to know and feel the gravity of this one who is supreme. So let's read it. As an aside, I have to say, it is also one of my favorite, if not my favorite passage in the entire Bible. So please follow along with me as we read. Colossians 1, starting at verse 15. It says, he, meaning Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself All things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue. In the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a minister. 
It is one thing to intellectually acknowledge something that is immense, important, or preeminent. It is another thing to feel the weight or the gravity of it. And this passage displays the significance of who Jesus is and what Jesus does. And he wants us to feel, to know and to feel the weight of this reality. And the result, after you read it and after you explore it, is that there's no mistaken identity going on here. There's no undervaluing this one that we celebrate. It makes him difficult to manipulate or to twist his identity into somebody we want him to be. Here he is. Jesus. The Son of God, just as he stands. Verse 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God. This answers that age-old question, how can I know a God that I can't see? People have been asking this for centuries. And the fact that Jesus is his image or in his image really has sort of a dual connotation to it. Number one, it means that he is a representation of God. But on the other side, it also means he is a manifestation of God. God. If you have ever wondered what God looks like, what God sounds like, how God would act, look to his son, Jesus. He is in his image. He was the firstborn of all creation, the text says. This does not mean that he himself was created, but rather that he was first. He has the position of privilege, of precedence over creation. He is God's son, and as God's son, he holds the birthright. And because he holds the birthright, he holds the inheritance. And because he holds the inheritance, he holds authority over all of creation. He holds this authority and position because, as the text would go on to say, all things were created through him or by him. Now here we find sort of an interesting distinction between the role of God the Father and God the Son. The Father is presented maybe in modern terms as the architect. He is the one who conceived of this beautiful world and universe being created and the sun, maybe we might describe as the foreman of this cosmic construction project. God the Father speaks, the sun enacts by his power, and the world is created. This includes the physical realm that we see and the spiritual realm that we do not see. But not only were all things created by him, but all things were created for him. Did you know that? The ultimate goal of creation and all of its inhabitants is Jesus. Everything and everyone exists to display his glory. And he will ultimately be glorified as a result of his creation. He is the central point and he rules over it. Now this points to one of those other central questions of our existence. This is a question that every single one of us has to reckon with at some point in life. What is my purpose? 
Why am I here? What's the meaning of all of this? What's my purpose in life? And I like the way that my friend Andy Bannister illustrates this. He says, for purpose to be truly meaningful, it needs to be external. It needs to be given. For example, take this piece of polished granite. It spends most of its time on my desk in my study at home functioning as a paperweight. That's its purpose. That's its meaning. But how did it get that purpose? Well, it had to be given to it, didn't it? When it sat in a quarry in New Hampshire with billions of other small pieces of granite, it didn't have a particular purpose other than just to sit there. The purpose it has had to be given. And the same is true for us. If there's no God to grant us purpose, then we're in the same position as a little stone among billions of other stones in a quarry in New Hampshire. But if there is a God who gives purpose, then indeed it is our goal, our desire, and even our responsibility to step into that purpose. And we see here the purpose is clear to glorify Jesus. You were created with a purpose. Your sole purpose in life as an individual, your sole purpose as a family unit, our sole purpose as a church, to glorify Jesus. We were created for him in our jobs, to glorify him, in our families, to glorify him, in our hobbies, in our downtime, with our house, with our possessions, even in what we eat and what we drink, created for the glory of Jesus. Verse 17 says, he is before all things. This is a statement of time orientation. And in him all things hold together. Not only did he create, but he continues to sustain. And if you came here thinking that God himself is this sort of hands-off God, that he's not actively involved in the world, you're mistaken. Or maybe you said, well, God is active. He sent his son Jesus. But Jesus came. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross to forgive us of our sins. He rose again from the dead, conquering sin, death, and the devil. He ascended into heaven where he is seated at the throne, the right hand of God the Father. But now, totally hands off. Just waiting for human history to come to its terminal end. If you think that, you're mistaken. Because this Jesus not only created the world, not only has the world for his glory, but is also actively sustaining it and integrally involved in the ongoings of our daily lives. He is the firstborn among the dead, the text says. When he rose from the dead... He did conquer sin, death, and the devil. He took preeminence over it. He guaranteed that his sacrifice was sufficient. And as such, when you put your faith in him, you sort of mirror a reality here. And the reality is 
he died taking sin with him. He rose again to new life. You too, spiritually, you die to your old self. You're raised again in a new spiritual life. That's why you're called a born-again Christian. This doesn't mean that you're some whack job like CNN would call you. It means that you understand the reality of death and resurrection and spiritual life. And it also means an incredible guarantee for you that because Jesus died in his body and his body was raised again, that you too, though your body continues to decay and will ultimately go into the ground, that someday it too will be raised again, met with your spirit or your soul, and moved to the heavenlies to dwell with God forever. Because Jesus was the firstborn among the dead, there'll be many more born among the dead. Those who've put their faith with him. Look with me at verse 18. Because he starts to get now to the central point of this hymn. And now is where you move and pick up some traction. So that in all things he might be preeminent. Or he might have supremacy. Jesus is supreme in all of these different ways. So he might have this supremacy. Or more literally that he might have the first place. All of these things, these realities that we're just beginning to sort of scratch the surface of. All of these things, who Jesus is and what he does are there so he might have the first place in your life. So that you would know and that you would feel that he is supreme in all things. And that you would orient your reality according to this truth. You know, I've really enjoyed how those who have gone before us have explored the ways, written about the ways that Jesus is supreme. One of my favorites over the years have been John Piper and how he structures this idea of supremacy. And I want to ask you to consider for a moment with me just what are the implications that Jesus is supreme in all of these different ways. Because when you start to really pull it apart, the implications are pretty profound. Jesus is supreme over the rulers of the earth. Whether it's President Barack Obama or Prime Minister David Cameron or Angela Merkel of Germany or Bashar al-Assad of Egypt or Secretary Jinping of China, the rulers of ISIS or small tribal leaders out in the middle of nowhere or large first world nations, Jesus is supreme. He is supreme over all of the royalty of our earth, now and through history, whether that is Queen Elizabeth of the United Kingdom or whether that is King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia. Jesus is supreme over the global economy and Janet Yellen and the Fed and NATO. He's supreme over the dollar, the euro, the yen, the pound sterling, the yuan, gold, silver, and platinum. And if he is supreme over global economics, you can be quite sure that he is supreme over your personal finances, whether growing or shrinking, 
whether in times of need or in times of plenty. And because he is the one who provides, you can also be sure that if you are directing your resources in God-directed ways, that you always have security. Because he is the one who provides security. He is supreme over weather and all natural resources. He's supreme over tsunamis and hurricanes and earthquakes, whether it's in Japan or Haiti or in New Orleans, or even 24 out of 30 rainy June days in Canfield, Ohio. (laughs) He is supreme over the oil reserves in Alaska or the Middle East, or the diamond mines in West Africa, both of which have been the source of wars for decades and maybe even centuries. He is supreme over the things that we cannot see and do not understand, whether it is the microbiology in the deepest depths of the ocean or the life forms on top of K2 or Mount Everest, whether in the spiritual realm that we cannot see and do not understand with its principalities and powers or the physical realm and all of its implications for us practically. He is supreme over the internet and the television and the newspaper and books and all mediums of communication, even Facebook and Google. He's supreme over universities and think tanks and all areas of contemporary thought. He's supreme over knowledge and logic and philosophies, and he knows infinitely more than Plato or Aristotle or Nietzsche or Martin Hedinger or Christopher Hitchens or Richard Dawkins have ever begun to conceive of. He is supreme over those who recognize him and his existence, and he is supreme over those who refuse to recognize him. If there's one point of Colossians chapter 1, it's so that we would know and feel that Jesus is supreme in everything. And he's supreme over you. And he's supreme over me. And so the question remains, what will you do with this one who has the first place, the preeminent one, the supreme one, what are you going to do with him? I mean, he is the beginning and the end. He is the one who has all power over all things, and he even has the power to put you and me in a right relationship with God. Because verse 21 highlights that we were all once alienated from God and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. And it's interesting to note that as he writes this, he doesn't qualify it and say some of you were once alienated from God and hostile toward God. Now you maybe never felt hostile toward God. I can't remember a time in my life where I really felt like I was hostile toward him. But I look back now, with, before I came to faith in Jesus, my thoughts, my motives, my actions, 
and in all reality, anyone before they put their faith in him, before he acts in your life in this way, is alienated from God. Our sin makes us an enemy to him. But Jesus comes, the supreme one over all of history and time and creation, and takes the form, human form, and the lowest possible position of humility after living a perfect life is sacrificed for all of those who are imperfect. And that is the gospel. That you, that me, whoever would put their faith in him would be reconciled to God. That we'd be made at peace with him, that we would be presented before him as without blemish, pure and spotless and without accusation, legally speaking. So we see that he concludes in verse 23 with this conditional clause, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. All of these things are applicable to you through faith and if you continue in faith and hope of the gospel that you have once heard. Now, it might be tempted to say, well, he's saying that you can have faith one day and not the next day and you'd be saved one day and not the next day. But I don't think that's what he's trying to say here. He's not trying to say you can lose your salvation. But what he is saying is, That the mark of true faith in your life is that Jesus sustains you in all things, including faithfulness. After all, if Jesus is sustaining, how could you possibly lose it? You can't. And as a result, when you come to your final days, on display for the whole world to see is a person who has genuinely had access to this reconciling work. For those who do not continue in faith and the hope before them, they might be called superficial professors or those who have had affections toward Jesus in some way without accessing true repentance and forgiveness that he offers through faith. Do you remember our goal this morning? Our goal is to paint a picture from the Bible about Jesus being supreme and therefore having the first place in our lives. And as I think about this text and as I think about just a couple of the implications of him being supreme over all things, I think there's probably three ways we could respond. Number one, we could be tempted to respond by saying, I'm going to try to keep my distance. Because if this is true, he's either way too immense for me, or if he really is supreme, then the implications of this are penetrating into my life, and I don't want that. (laughs) So I'm going to keep him over here. And I'll acknowledge that he's powerful, but I won't submit to his supremacy. And we might be tempted to think that we'd be okay in that position. I mean, after all, intellectual assent to something is important, right? But if that's the case, you need to know 
Because he is supreme in all of these ways, if we don't submit to the implications of them, what in effect we're doing is remaining, as verse 21 says, as people who are alienated, hostile in mind, and really enemies of God. Number two, we could recognize his supremacy. We could make a personal decision to put our faith in him because if indeed he has all power and access to all things and he chooses to use his power to reconcile me to God, why would I not want to submit to that? Why would I not want to surrender to that? Why would I not want to say, okay, my will and my perspective is actually limited. Yours is unlimited. And so I want to take what's imperfect and move toward what is perfect. But to do that, you need to make a choice. And the choice is one of asking God to forgive you your sins and putting your faith, surrendering to this one who is supreme over you. Now I know a lot of people uh, in our church have made that choice and that leads us to number three. The third option of what to do with this for those of you that put your faith in Christ. For you the decision is whether or not you want to continue in your faith established and firm not moved from the hope held in the gospel as it says in verse 22 and 23. And that's a challenge, let's be honest. Because for some of us, it is so easy to lose sight of his supremacy. Or we don't fully appreciate the weight of this reality. Or we fall into that temptation that intellectual assent is somehow enough when it really demands much more of us than that. It's a challenge because we live in a time where we might not explicitly say it, but we find ourselves sort of creeping into a mindset or a worldview that lives as if all religions are equal or have equal merits and that they hold teachings that lead to God. Or we have a lack of urgency when it comes to sharing the good news of Jesus with other people around us. And when we do that, we have a disregard, in a sense, for his supremacy. We don't fully appreciate the reality that, as he says, that he, he, he alone, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. When we hold our money so tightly that we don't give faithfully to God or we don't exercise generosity to each other, as the scripture teaches us, we are in effect saying, Jesus, my financial plan is superior or supreme to yours. And we deny his supremacy in that way. When we're unhappy about our circumstances, which happens for all of us, or when we suffer, which happens to all of us, and when in our unhappiness or our suffering we find ourselves with a propensity to cast off what we know is right, right action, right behavior, 
in pursuit of whatever is going to make us feel better for the moment. I think all of us have felt that way at some time where we just say, woe is me, my life is so hard, I'm, I'm going to do whatever I can do, whatever I desire to do, whatever's going to make me feel good right now because I don't care about anything else. But when we do that, we are in essence saying, Jesus, you aren't able to meet my deepest needs. And therefore, you must not be supreme. When we again indulge in sinful desires, whether it's too much to eat or too much to drink or sexual sin or a tasty morsel of gossip, we trade lasting joy from the Supreme One for passing pleasures. And then we wonder why we're unhappy. Or... And I reckon this is the problem for most of us. When we simply take Jesus too casually, and I am as guilty as the rest of us, when we forget, we're distracted. We pursue other affections, but we don't recognize that he can actually meet all of our deepest needs and superficial needs if he is placed in the right position, the first place. But when we lower him on that ranking scale, we are in a sense saying, Jesus, you are not supreme. The implication of this text is that because Jesus is supreme... He doesn't just partially save you. He redeems your entire person. All of those little complex parts and pieces that make up you. And because he's supreme. He is the supreme God of the universe who created you. He is more than capable of complete salvation, reconciliation, and restoration. Jesus Christ is supreme in all things and is worthy of our complete and utter allegiance. Does he have yours? Does he have yours?